Section 5 Chapter 2, Part 4 Plant 21 is established. Monday, February 19th, was an important day in more ways than one. While the train investigation was going on, it was learned that a woman known as Myrtle Horn, an intimate of Annie's, had moved to a lower west side rooming house, taking Annie's trunk with her, as though Annie expected to return to the city. After a preliminary survey, this house was visited by Commissioner Doherty in person. He explained that he was a contractor about to build a section of the new subway, and that he was looking for a quiet room at a reasonable price where he might have some of the comforts of home. After a little talk with the landlady, it became clear that she was honest and trustworthy, with no information of the new lodger who had taken her front room in the basement. Arrangements were quickly made to put this house, inside and outside, under constant surveillance. Along in the evening, Mrs. Isabella Goodwin, a police matron, was installed there. The commissioner brought her and carried her bundle. The landlady and the matron had never seen each other in their lives, but kissed ostentatiously, and made considerable fuss on the chance of being overheard. Mrs. Goodwin was planted as the landlady's sister, who had come from Montreal to live with her and help in the housework, until she could find a position in New York. The commissioner grumbled a little about her stinginess in refusing to pay an expressman to bring her bundle, and then took his departure, explaining that the train had been late and the baby was not well, and his wife, Aggie, would be worried about him, and so forth. Mrs. Goodwin established herself in a room at the rear of the basement, handy to that occupied by Myrtle Horn, and kept her eyes and ears open as she went about the housework, slipping out to report when she had any information and receiving instructions. Outside surveillance on this house was conducted from an empty store across the street. Arrangements for the use of such property are usually made by the police without difficulty, though occasionally a close-fisted owner expects rent. Blinds were put up over the windows, peepholes made, and a few hammers provided, with some nails and boards. Then six of the best shadow men in the detective bureau were stationed there. They made a little noise occasionally in getting the store ready for a big firm moving up from downtown, and watched the house day and night. Whenever Myrtle went out, she was followed. If she had visitors, they were investigated. This store was known by the code term of Plant 21, so the reports could be sent without disclosing police information. Montani Goes Free On Monday, too, Montani was arraigned in court and discharged for what appeared to be lack of any evidence against him. At this point, the commissioner took the liberty of fooling the newspapermen for the good of his case. Newspaper criticism for three days had been particularly severe. Editors made many charges, 
and were fertile in suggestions as what ought to be done to reorganize the presumably demoralized police department. The present writer feels confident, however, that a careful search of the files for those days will disclose hardly any suggestions likely to be at all helpful to public servants in the discharge of duty. Many questions with no real bearing on the case had been brought up by the journalists, and the commissioner, who was patient in answering the newspapermen, began to be a little tired. On Sunday night his big office was filled with reporters. They sat about everywhere. He had admitted them because he wanted them to see that he was working. From time to time they quizzed him in this fashion. "'Is it true that you and Commissioner Waldo have quarreled? Is Waldo going to resign? Do you favor the Sullivan Law against pistols? Will the deadline be maintained now?' Hadn't the daily lineup of criminals ought to be restored so that detectives will know crooks when they see them? Hasn't Mayor Gaynor tied the hands of the police? And so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Suddenly, on Sunday night, Doherty turned and read the newspapermen a lecture. He said that he wanted them to understand that he was no spring chicken at his business, that he was working eighteen hours a day, and that he knew he would show results if the people would only be patient and give him time. His only recommendation in the way of new laws or reforms was for a statute that would enable the police to put known criminals, without occupation or visible means of support, at work mending roads. He outlined a plan which, rather strangely, did not get any attention in the newspapers at all. His idea of dealing with idle criminals, he said, was to have a cart with commissary and sleeping quarters for twelve men. As soon as twelve idle criminals with records had been sentenced, they would pull this cart out of town themselves, under guard, and go to work repairing roads. If that plan were adopted, New York would not only be as free from criminals as the District of Columbia, where a similar measure is enforced, but the roads all around the city would be so well cared for that they could be used as roller-skating rinks. The newspapers next morning were quite certain that Commissioners Waldo and Doherty had quarreled, and when the journalists went down to report Montani's examination in court, they were decidedly partial to the taxicab man. Doherty had told the newspapermen beforehand that he had evidence enough to have Montani held for trial. He had made very positive statements about this. Montani would be arraigned, he predicted, and if charged on one count, would be immediately arrested on something else. If he was discharged on that, he would still be arraigned on further charges. It needs no very brilliant imagination, therefore, to picture the effect upon the newspapers when Montani, after being arraigned on the doubtful points in his own account of the crime, and those not too vigorously pressed, was discharged with comment by the court upon the flimsiness of the police case.
There was one striking discrepancy in the evidence presented at the examination which, if pressed, should have resulted in the holding of Montani for trial. He still insisted that he had stopped his cab because an old man had got in front of it, but this was denied by a witness. That point was permitted to pass by Lieutenant Riley, who appeared for the police. Montani could have been rearrested on charges based upon his attempt to defraud the insurance company, but he was permitted to go free. That course had been decided on at police headquarters after some difference of opinion. The newspapers were now more pessimistic than ever in their comment. They contrasted this outcome with Doherty's promise that the chauffeur would be rearrested. It was taken as a confession of police incompetency and bewilderment, which, as will be seen in its proper place, was very useful in its way. Montani went free and was jubilant, calling on the commissioner next morning to thank him. But from the moment he left court until he was arrested again, the Italian chauffeur never got out of sight of the police department. WHAT DEVELOPED ON A BUSY TUESDAY It was on the day after Montani's release that Commissioner Doherty began to uncover more interesting characters in the taxicab drama. Bit by bit, through points supplied by informants and persons who had come in contact with him in various ways, a very good working knowledge of the fugitive kinsman was pieced together. It appeared that he had come to New York the previous summer, from Boston, and after a brief career as a boxer, had gone to work in a Sixth Avenue resort known as the Nutshell Café, where he was a waiter. Among his associates there had been two characters who invited further inquiry. The first of these was a fellow called Gene, described as having a parrot nose and a criminal record. He had been a close pal of Kinsman, and had also introduced another intimate, a wily little Italian called Jess, who had formerly owned a thieves' resort, which he called the Arch Café. A good description of Jess was secured. There was some delay while the commissioner surrounded this last-mentioned resort to find out if it was a place where any information might be obtained openly. The question was decided in the negative, so a plain-clothesman was quietly planted there to pick up information. When a criminal is arrested, or falls, it is customary in the underworld to raise a fund for his defense. The Arch Café was a center for the deposit of such fall money. It was learned that a hundred dollars had been raised for the defense of a man named Clark, alias Malloy, under arrest in Brooklyn for robbery. This was the same Malloy to whose fine character Kinsman had asked his landlady to swear in court. The Italian named Jess had taken charge of Malloy's defense fund, but squandered it in a spree. Later, making it good, he had sent it over to Malloy's relief by Kinsman's pal, Dutch, and an Italian known as Matteo.
District inspectors of police were then called upon to find a detective who knew Jess, and an Italian plainclothesman, Antony Greco, who had grown up in that part of New York where Jess had kept a café, and who knew the latter well, was detailed with another detective to look him up and keep him under surveillance. They found that Jess, whose last name was Albrazzo, had headquarters in a tough resort in Thompson Street, kept by an Italian named James Pasquale, better known as Jimmy the Push. From that time Jess was kept on tap to await further developments. Then the commissioner undertook to find out more about the character called Gene. Working in New York as waiters and bartenders were many members of a criminal band known as the Forty Thieves of Boston. The commissioner called in all of them that he could find and sounded each for information about this Gene. After the time of day had been passed, the talk would turn on members of the band and criminals in general, and after curiosity had been excited, Gene would be referred to casually. If the party interviewed said he knew Gene, the commissioner would probably be skeptical, ask his last name, press for details of appearance and habits, and then pass to some other subject. It was found that Gene's last name was Splaine, that he had served a term in prison in Boston as a boy, and that, by his general description, he must be the third fugitive accompanying Kinsman and Annie. When Detective Watson got better descriptions of the third man at Albany, and comparisons were made with sources of information in New York, it became practically certain that Gene Splaine was with Kinsman. Annie Shows at Plant 21 it was on this day, too, Tuesday, February 20th, that Swede Annie suddenly stepped into police view, wearing a new hat. She turned up quietly at the house where Myrtle Horn had moved with her trunk and began living in the front basement room. Matron Goodwin and Plant 21 immediately reported her presence, and from that time the shadow men across the street had something to do besides driving nails. For whenever Annie or Myrtle went out of the house, they were followed. Shadowing is a highly interesting kind of police work, at which some men have exceptional ability. The general conception is that of a detective following closely behind the suspected person, with his eyes glued to him, and cautiously crouching behind lamp-posts and trees when the victim turned suddenly. But that is far from the real thing. The work is done in ways altogether different. Shadow men operate in pairs, as a rule, and keep track of their party from vantage points not likely to be suspected. They dress according to the character of the case, always in quiet clothes, changed daily, and with absolutely no colors that will attract attention or lead to recognition through the memory. 
They know how to follow when the person under surveillance rides in cabs, cars, or trains to cover the different exits from a building into which he or she may have gone, and to loiter several hours around a given neighborhood, if need be, without attracting the attention of honest citizens. This work is done by shifts. The operators relieve each other almost as regularly as office employees, no matter how far the trail may have taken them. They are in constant touch with headquarters for the purpose of making reports and receiving instructions. In this branch of detective work, as in many others, the chief requisite is resourcefulness. The detective of fact wears little disguise, apart from clothes that fit the surroundings he moves in. But he has an instant knack at accounting for himself as a normal character who has happened quite naturally into the scene. Ready wits do the trick, not false whiskers. Thus it came about that whenever Annie and Myrtle were hungry and sat down in a restaurant, what they said was noted by a couple of fellows at another table, who quickly made a party of the chance patrons they found there, discussing wages or the suffragettes. Or, if Annie used the telephone in a drug store, a polite young man turning over the directory said to her, "'Go ahead, lady, I'm in no hurry,' and listened. At the same time, Matron Goodwin was reporting conversations from inside the house. It appeared that Kinsman had sent Annie back to the city after buying her a new hat and giving her a hundred and twenty-five dollars. He promised to write soon, but did not tell her where he was going. Toward the end of the week, as no letter arrived, Annie began worrying and was talkative. She feared that Eddie no longer loved her. She reproached herself for letting him go without taking her along, and spoke of setting out to find him. End of section 5